Hello and welcome to Living Out Loud, the podcast where I explore the connection between spiritual inquiry and social good. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Oldfield, director of the think tank Theos, which exists to help people move beyond common misconceptions about the place of faith and religion in society. She appears regularly in the media, including BBC One, Sky News and The World Service, writing in the Financial Times and delivering thought for the day on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. She also runs her own podcast, The Sacred, which looks at the state of our public conversations and the ways we might do them better. I interviewed her in the central London Theos office on a buzzing Thursday afternoon, so you might hear some background traffic noise, but I hope that doesn't detract from what was a really engaging talk I had with Liz about tribalism, polarisation and civil conversations. I start each interview by asking if you have a spiritual sensibility, mm-hmm. and if so, how has that shown itself in your life? I hope I have a spiritual sensibility. I feel that this word spiritual trips us up a lot, and that's behind, I think, Jonathan Rowson's coining of this idea of a spiritual sensibility as being more helpful than spirituality, but there's some things within that category that I think we can agree on which is to try and look beyond the very materialist approach to seeing life as 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 functional individuals making functional choices in the world to optimize their own comfort and success which is the most stripped out way I think of seeing the way we live and when you begin to go beyond that into questions of meaning and purpose questions of how we live together well uh, how do we honor each other what is a what is a humane approach to the human and then you're into the territory of spiritual sensibility and really that's the things in life I find most interesting that I am most animated by um, I don't want a functional life where I end up very comfortable and successful and haven't explored these wider questions of meaning has that always been an interest of yours I don't know if always, I've always read novels and I think there is something about literature that helps inculcate a spiritual sensibility. I read years ago Status Anxiety by Alan de Botton, which I think is one of the best things he's done. And he looks at various different levers for helping in, in actually in the context ameliorate status anxiety, but I think it goes for lots of things that in the world of the story, what a good life looks like, what a good world is, who are heroes and villains and are almost always asking spiritual questions in novels, I think. So uh, I was always the child with their head in a book, you know, crashing into lamp lampposts as I walked to school reading. Um, but I don't, and I had a sort of bro- very vaguely culturally Christian childhood, but um, my mum was from an atheist family and my dad was from a sort of, you know, taken to chapel at school kind of family. But I encountered a much more explicit raw form of religion through a friend taking me to a youth group and encountered Christians for the first time that weren't old ladies you know that seemed irrelevant Uh, young vibrant interesting Christians um, and asked a lot of questions and was a difficult Hermione figure in that group I think Um, but eventually had a very powerful ecstatic experience of God which 
uh, led to me becoming a Christian at a, about age 15. So I'd say certainly from that point, a more explicit self-aware approach to wanting a spiritual sensibility or spirituality to be central to my life. I can pinpoint it from there. Mm-hmm. Were you an, an anomaly as within your peer group? Yes, I was. And, and within my family. So my mum's side of the family are very hostile to religion. And my dad was certainly eyebrow raised at the sort of happy clappy um, expression of it and I didn't have any friends at school who really understood so I sort of quietly stopped getting off with so many boys at parties and drinking quite so much and you know disappeared off to youth group a few times a week but I think I was young enough that it didn't feel like a giant crunching of the gears it didn't feel like um, and taking off of a skin or putting on a new skin it felt like part of that evolution of teenagedom where you were constantly changing and reinventing yourself anyway and so is everyone around you so it was able to be part of that process Mm -hmm. you were able to integrate it into your life in a kind of seamless way and then how did your religious identity develop was it always just about a theistic belief in god how how has it developed over the course Mm. from then to now well i i was interested in the concept that there might be a god but i had a lot of intellectual questions about it about suffering which i think is the hardest question um but also about the religions about sexuality about all these big questions that um that create barriers to for people and so i worked through some of those and got some good answers on some of them and less good answers on some so i was sort of warming up to the idea that this was this was a kind of possible intellectual um position but became a christian through as I said, a very emotional, I, I prayed, God, if you're real, I want to know, and was laid flat out on the floor for about an hour, sort of, you know, very intense experience of love and peace. Um, and so my foundations of my religious faith have been experiential encounter with God. It, it bypassed the intellectual to begin with and was very emotional and very relational. And I started praying in tongues, which is a... Uh, countercultural thing to admit in our uh, highly educated metropolitan podcast <laughs> listening circles um, and still do uh, and that continued for many years but alongside that my intellectual kind of faculties were developing and I went off to university and the, and the two things developed in almost on sort of parallel tracks this very emotional intense relational faith in God and then my intellectual interest in the wider world and ideas and it was only when I got a job at the BBC when I was recently graduated and I went to work on a television programme about the Bible. And I was with a lot of Oxford and Cambridge theology graduates, all of whom were no longer Christians or had never been. Um, and were very much of that school, which at the time, I believe it's changed now, was very much about kind of unpacking the Bible and what would be seen as kind of debunking um, the scriptures. And I had a real crisis because I realised I didn't have any intellectual foundations under this emotional, relational faith. So I went through a process of several years of, um, well, initially trying to be an atheist and wondering if it was all nonsense and deciding that I'd been conned. <laughs> um, uh, and then through finding that, one, deeply unsatisfying and two, very difficult in practice because I just did not seem to be able to shake God off, met lots of highly intelligent Christians who were able to say, look, just because you haven't yet got the intellectual underpinnings doesn't mean they're not there. So then read a lot in, in that kind of intellectual element of my faith, which continues to be 
a source of great joy really because the ideas that are can can spring up in other places but have most commonly come from Christian soil about the dignity of the human person about the primacy of the quality of our relationships about the equality of human beings um, uh, become more and more beautiful as time goes on and 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 the radical kind of social I'm trying to think of the word but you know the, the, the concept of loving your loving your enemy mm-hmm. the concept of self-sacrificial love at that level the the dethroning of the primacy of the individual becomes more and more intellectually satisfying and compelling and interesting to me as time goes on and as an ethic yes um, and, and as an astonishingly rigorous and impossible to live up to ethic you know the Christian ethic the Christ, to, to really take seriously the commands of Jesus requires an enormously radical life of which I am you know <laughs> the, the chief of sinners as, as Paul would say but as a, as a set of ideas that both take seriously the fragility of human beings takes seriously how how difficult we find it to live up even to our own standards but rather than casting us into despair because of that offers a hope that through in collaboration with partnership with God and with each other we can become more beautiful more humane more self-sacrificial more loving go beyond ourselves um more than the kind of logic of our consumer culture could ever imagine mm-hmm. um, and a challenge to enlightenment enlightenment man which doesn't really consider the brokenness of the human condition yeah and see, sees the rational man as being able to yeah control to overcome everything and you know i'm not one of those christians who wants to constantly be pouring water on the enlightenment because i think the enlightenment is very bound up in the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, we know that actually lots of the key thinkers themselves were Christians and that that, that many of the fruits of that, of the, of the kind of anti-authoritarian instinct of the, um, the freedom of the individual from oppression, freedom of conscience, there are lots of these Enlightenment values that I would happily stand on the um, barricades with my secularist friends to defend. But the, the, the anthropology, uh, the Christian anthropology seems to me to hold together uh, the two things, and I don't see it anywhere anywhere else. That we, yes, we are in theory perfectible, perfectible, but our we should have a radical humility about our ability um, to live up to our own standards, and that comes across, you know, in the scientific method. The scientific method was devised by a bunch of Puritans, right? Mm-hmm. If that if we are fundamentally depraved in like proper Calvinist language, then of course we shouldn't trust the results of our own experiments first time. They need to be repeatable. They need to be peer reviewed. You know, we have a deep suspicion and a scepticism firstly towards ourselves, and I think that's just very freeing. But that also that our capacity for love, that our capacity to reflect the Trinity, which is kind of, you know, the, the, the ultimate relationship is there and that the beauty of that and that the dignity and the image of God and human beings means um, that it's it's worth trying. It's a wonderful thing. And what's fascinating to me um, is that, you know, the work of the Social Brain Centre at the RSA and, and lots of other places, behavioural science and social psychology seems to me to be repeatedly confirming a Christian anthropology that we are so partial um, and we are so tribal and we are so relational mm-hmm. um, and creaturely creaturely and embodied mm-hmm. that our mm-hmm. bodies are so important and that the better we understand ourselves rather than just kind of haranguing each other for failing to be you know enlightenment man there's got to be a better way of going about it mm-hmm. great so you became director of theos in 2011 yeah do you want to speak a bit about the think tank and also explain what the common misconceptions about faith and religion in the public narrative there are at the moment. Yeah. So uh, I took over in 2011 and I'd previously been at the BBC and worked on 
wide range of things, but latterly on programmes like the Moral Maze, and was increasingly frustrated that, one, the level of discussions generally about what is a good life and how do we live together and what, what is human value were so shallow, but also that the religious voices that were on were always the shrillest and most um, tribal. And that's obviously not unique to religion, um, but it seemed to me pretty important that this body of thought, which whether you believe in the, the metaphysics of it or not, which are not irrelevant, but um, uh, that, that there is a body of thought, a body of values, a, a way of seeing the world, uh, which is highly relevant to many of our discussions, and it was being badly misrepresented. So I left the BBC and went and studied theology and was thinking what to do, and then this job at Theos came up. So what Theos is trying to do really is to provide that sane, informed, gracious uh, Christian perspective on current debates and just be the place that you come to when you need to know what's going on broadly about religion and society, religion and politics. So we're trying to do really excellent, rigorous, reliable research um, and provide a kind of theologically literate, at least, voice on some of these things. And I think the most popular misconceptions are that religion is a one that is even in itself a useful, particularly useful category. You know, anything that can encompass ISIS and the Quakers is probably losing some of its explanatory power, right? Mm -hmm. We use it because it's a useful shorthand, but um, it can do more harm than good the term, which is why we're pretty comfortable saying we're a Christian think tank that works on religion, because I think specificity and particularity are important here, and being transparent about that. There is a lot of misconception about uh, religion and violence and religion and sexuality, and that's because sex and death are the things that human beings are most uh, drawn to in general. They're the most, you know, clickbait, in, even in previous years when clickbait wasn't a thing. And therefore we see almost all of our news through those lenses, like harm and violence or anything with sex in it will, will always be high up the news agenda. But it means particularly in religion you get this deeply distorted view that one religious people are obsessed with sex which they're really not and the, and the very small number of instances where religion is causing harm are representative of the whole so part of the reasons that theos exists is we believe that christianity in particular religion in general does enormously more good than harm in a society and we want to rebalance that narrative a bit and then a lot of people would criticize certain established religions for social conservatism mm -hmm. conservatism yeah for example me just coming across theos there's an automatic association of Christian equals social conservatism. How do you start to disentangle yourself from that kind of immediate association? And is that what you want to do? Mm. That's a very astute question that we're thinking quite deeply at the moment about. I mean, we are a broad-based organisation, so we're a Christian organisation with members of staff and connections with and um, influenced by... Uh, many different points on the theological spectrum, some of which are evangelical, socially conservative, some of which are liberal Catholics, some of which are liberation theology, some of which are queer theology, you know, it's all in there. Um, so we're not an inherently socially conservative organisation. But I think part of the problem here is is a clash of sacred values, because it's important to understand where social conservatism comes from. And it's very easy and understandable to read social conservatives as basically wanting to impose, to stop other people making choices about their sex life, for example, um, or their bodily autonomy in the case of abortion. And that is how it plays out. And as a feminist and a woman, I, I feel that. I feel the weight of that. Perceived to be casting aspersions on someone else's sexual choices 
feels very offensive in this culture, and it, and, and sometimes is offensive, and often is tonally deeply problematic. But philosophically, where social conservatives come, conservatism comes from is a sacred value around the human that is very misunderstood. So, um, broadly, if human beings are made in the image of God, then the most important thing is that our relationships honour each other and do not descend into a kind of transactional relationship in which we're using other people. So people who have more conservative Christian sexual ethic would say, and let's bracket out homosexuality for a minute because it com complicates the question, but uh, say people who believe that you should only have sex within marriage is not, well for some people it's straightforward prudery, right? But for a lot of people it's not that. It's because promiscuity is perceived to be a way of human beings not treating each other with the honour and dignity that they should have. And that sex is a powerful bonder and therefore um, if you put it in marriage and you have committed to someone, you've made a covenant relationship with someone, it protects you against using that powerful lever of sex against them. You are, again, that sense of fallibility, the sense of your own selfishness, protecting against hurting other people. So the Christian sexual, sexual ethic comes from that and there's a whole thing about gender and homosexuality which is more complicated. But again, with abortion, there's a sacred value there about vulnerable human life. And it's often co-opted by misogynists. And it's often co-opted, but mm -hmm. for a lot of social conservatives, that isn't why they're anti-abortion. They're anti-abortion because they believe that, particularly the Old Testament teaches, to speak up for the most vulnerable, and they include the unborn amongst the most vulnerable. So despite my understanding of our often cultural revulsion towards social conservatism, because individual free choice is for some very good reasons a very high moral value. There are some pretty credible moral values in social conservatism that should also, I think, not be written off. So then that gets misconstrued and yeah, there's there's no clear dialogue between these positions. Yeah. What do you think are the ways to mediate the language and perspectives mm -hmm. uh, which just cause so much furore um, and people to start shouting and not listening? Yeah. So I think being a bit more honest about our own sacred values, and I'm using that term in the Scott Atran sense, he has a wonderful book called Talking to the Enemy, which is actually about extremism, but he talks about sacred values being the things that if someone offered you money to give up, you would be less likely to give them up. Um, they're, the, they're the kind of gut, instinctive, defensive, uh, you will trigger me into an emotional reaction to this um, by threatening this. And... They're very different across tribes, but we're often not 100% aware of our own, let alone aware of the others. And if your sacred value is, um, say, female bodily autonomy, that is the highest moral value, then it just looks like people who are anti-abortion are, uh, are desecrating your sacred value by saying that women should, there should be limits on. Rather than seeing that someone is not tr is not trying to desecrate your sacred value, but they have a different one, and that you know the byproduct is is it threatening yours, and vice versa. So I'm often talking to pro-life religious people and saying, I know the value of the unborn child is 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 an important moral imperative. There is this other also important moral imperative about women and the specificity is women's bodily experience and the way our society is set up that makes childbirth and pregnancy and mothering so costly that really needs to be in the mix as we're, as we're having these ethical conversations and the more human and humble and honest and open we can be about that complexity that actually a desire to win means we can't even acknowledge that the other person might have a point. 
Do you think that there's an element of fundamentalism in that perspective of just trying to universalize what that sacred value and not being able to see anything beyond that, the confines of that perspective? Yeah, yeah very much so. The one of my favourite Iris Murdoch quotes is, "Love is the very difficult realization that someone other than oneself is real," and I think that goes beyond love. That the emotional intelligence and the epistemic humility required to think oneself into someone else's point of view for long enough to understand them, particularly if they repel you, is 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 a is a is a, a rigorous moral task, which most of us don't have the time, capacity, energy for, particularly those who feel themselves to be oppressed and that they're in a kind of you know fight for survival situation. But it does mean that in these very knotty moral questions we feed each other's self-righteousness we feed each other's um fear and anger and tendency to dehumanize the other to someone who disagree with us just disagrees with us becomes less than human because they don't understand that this thing is sacred that they are destroying this thing and i'm sort of working on a hunch about what's what's going on internally about kicking each other into fight or flight all the time and actually what we probably need to do is what I'm doing when I'm parenting my toddler which is just stay calm and empathetic for long enough for the cortisol to wear off and then you might be able to have a rational conversation but the whole time Edith is feeling threatened by me I look like the enemy that's the that's what's going on in her uh, brain chemistry and staying in relationship long enough to let to tolerate our feelings of fear and anger and disgust in order to engage the rational brain to begin to understand the other that we don't have situations that are set up to help us do that no there's no we can't sit with each other long enough to change the, the initial temperament and actually get beyond that anger how can spaces be created what's the way forward so i think that it is very easy to condemn tribalism in others and very difficult to see it in yourself. So modelling, spending time with people who disagree with you and are different from you, very practical ways, just, you know, reading papers or newspapers or listening to podcasts or, you know, following on Twitter people whose views you can feel yourself react negatively to and spend long enough there that you stop being triggered into that every time. And you might be able to then hear what they're really saying and vice versa. It, it is deeply destabilising. I was talking uh, to someone yesterday who'd been chairing an event where it felt like two tribes collided and he was emotionally completely spent afterwards because our comfortable state is with people like ourselves and challenging ourselves out of it is difficult. So peer support, uh, equipping and resources into it. it it needs to get cool really doesn't it it needs to be something that mm. is seen as something that the thinking person does challenging themselves into understanding the other rather than this much easier reaction which is kind of self-righteous tribalism and writing off everyone else as an idiot spouting nonsense so what do you think about no platforming because that's by extension doing that really isn't it yeah just self-affirming the tribe's message it is i am generally opposed to anything that uh, shuts down our ability to encounter the other and people who disagree with us. I have more sympathy for it than lots of the generation sort of condemning millennial snowflakes. That whole narrative annoys me. Um, I, I understand why when you're 
uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old trying to work out your, what your identity is, having someone call that whole thing into question feels a, a bit terrifying and that's something you don't want to do. So rather than haranguing people to do it, supporting them in it. And again, there's this sense of emotional, emotional resilience, being able to tolerate our own emotions and get beyond that fight or flight reaction into a more, uh, into a more rational brain um, would help. But yeah, no platforming is not a long-term solution to any of this. No, I guess it's with that, it, with that question of tribes which are under threat and the minority tribes and that emotional response to things which seem threatening there's no you can't get into that rational state of mind to be able to engage with the uh what's different and so how do you think that language or yeah language and the ways that people can do you think it's good that people should just speak their mind freely um whatever that position is how important is tone tone is very important and I was speaking to Giles Fraser about this other day. Said the other day about the sort of tyranny of being nice. So I, I hate the nice word. I also hate the civil word because civil is so grudging, isn't it? It's so thin. But I do, I do actually think there's something quite deep in manners. That so the all I can say is what I am trying to do myself, which mm-hmm. is to respond to hostility or challenge as calmly as I possibly can, and even when I feel really under threat, to realise that so does the other person that I am usually completely unwittingly causing them to feel threatened because I hold a view or have a perspective or belong to a group that they have an emotional reaction to and for some people that's deeply personal if they're gay or they've had a terrible experience in a church then anything about religion can just be painful to come across of course it can you know it's just enormous mess um in the back there so a lot of it is just trying to have the empathy to work out why this person is so angry and not to respond myself because if you if you defend when someone attacks you then that's it you're in a cycle and you you kick and kick and kick and then you retreat to your trenches and there is no possibility of change no possibility of persuasion no possibility of genuine human encounter um so i try and stay calm so for example if i've I used to do thought for the day. If I've said something on thought for the day that's unwittingly really pissed someone off and they come at me on Twitter as a kind of homophobic theist who believes in whatever the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, There's a sort of uh, bingo card we have for these terms. But being able to say, thank you for getting in touch. I'm really sorry that you found that so upsetting. Tell me more. You know, not, oh, go away. But... Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have a genuine grievance, in, or at least you think you do, and you might, I don't know, maybe I have said something offensive and I just don't know you. So listening to them, treating them as a human being, I draw the line at sort of rapey death threats, but anything this side of that, I will respond to civilly and try and unpack what is going on. And usually after two or three tweets of me staying calm, the other person is able to see that I'm not as much of a nutjob as they thought they were as they thought I was and that I am open to kind of reasonable conversation and that we might have more in common than they thought and then you get onto a much calmer footing and you know I'm not saying that loads of people in those situations end up changing their mind but there certainly are people that I would go for a beer with now from radically different tribes that started off with a very spiky encounter and just trying to keep my cool uh, makes that much more productive. Mm -hmm. And it's where the personal becomes political right so the, the way that we interact and encounter others has a, has a wider social effect and being aware of those effects is 
important and being able to nurture and develop them. Does it come down to personality type? <laughs> I think lots in life comes down to personality type. Yeah. Um, temperament, our tolerance of novelty, our tolerance of risk, our tolerance of just social interactions. If you, if you, if you tend to the introvert, then every social interaction has a sort of cost to you and therefore you'll spend most of them on people um, mm-hmm. that, that you feel very safe with. And we shouldn't problematise or demonise particular personality types. I do think, however, there is a wider discipline of, um, of courage, the, the, the courage to go beyond our own comfort zone, whatever, you know, we will have different comfort zones, but to go beyond it, to push ourselves, to encounter people not like us. Um, do you implement that in your life? Do you follow lots of... I try. Yeah? I try, yeah. Um, I think there's lots of lots of bubbles I'm not even aware of that I should probably be getting into, but I sort of uh, I make myself read. Uh, when I read a newspaper, I alternate between the Guardian, the Times, the Telegraph, and I make myself occasionally read the Daily Mail, and I follow a variety of of commentators. And I do I feel often I am quite bilingual, so I try and spend time in conservative circles, I try and spend time in more liberal leaning circles, I try and spend time in very conservative religious circles and in very secular circles and often seem to be kind of mediating between them and and building bridges and helping people understand. I enjoy that, that's part of my personality type and it it isn't for everyone, but the discipline of uh, forcing yourself to encounter things that you don't agree with, I think it should be just a kind of every good citizen's habit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Being able to code switch. That's a nice term. Yeah. So what do you think is missing from the public narrative about religion? some there's a very easy kind of connection of like seeing god as a dirty word or religion as irrelevant you know 53 percent of people on the national center of social research saying now describing themselves as not not religious what's the role what's missing from our understanding about this but what religion is the most important thing is and you know this is difficult in the kind of fast-moving media landscape that we have but is to complexify those categories because there is not a kind of hermetically sealed group of people who are called religious and a hermetically sealed group of people who are called non-religious most of us are some mixture of the above we did some polling which showed that about nine percent of people are really consistent materialist atheists but almost everyone else who would describe themselves as non-religion either pray or believe in god or angels or heaven or uh, actually attend church regularly and still call themselves not religious. You know, there, there are lots of interesting complexities in how we describe ourselves. I think the way religion is often reported falls into this very rationalist, capitalist, essentially, paradigm and tries to take models from, from politics or from other things to describe it. So there ends up talking about institutions, you know, institutions jostling for position, those kind of things. And... and the role of religious institutions is part of the picture, but for most people, religion is a thing of our internal world, right? And the, our internal world is a very difficult thing uh, to talk about accurately. It's a very vulnerable thing um, to talk about our search for meaning, our sense of failure, our desire for, give, for forgiveness, our longing to be part of a narrative bigger than ourselves, um, our search for meaning. So those things, I think, much more true to most people's uh, experience of, of faith than ever gets uh, revealed in public debates. I was thrilled to see um, Francis Bufford's book, Unapologetic, a few years ago because stepped away from the kind of ding-dong about 
uh, the, you know, the evidence and the epistemology and, and, and said, you know, why despite everything, Christianity still makes surprising emotional sense. There are for a lot of people a kind of dirty secret that when they sit in a cathedral, they feel better. That when they pray a prayer that they learned in their childhood, it centres them. That they may be like Julian Barnes, the author, say, you know, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That it's all right <laughs> to have this longing, to admit that you have it, that an entirely kind of functional world, entirely functional life doesn't seem to be quite enough. Not the limits of existence. Okay, so, yeah, capitalism. <laughs> Instrumentalising things to functions, a very kind of external account of how things function in a mechanical way. How do we integrate the inner life with that account of uh, the workplace um, and the way that society operates? Because mm. it's not a case of either or, it's a case of integration, right? So, look... We haven't got a good alternative to capitalism, have we? And in lots of places, it is. Um, it certainly seems to be doing much more good than harm. So I'm not hostile to it in essence. I think the most helpful work that's been done on this is from Catholic Social Teaching. We published a report called Just Money, How Catholic Social Teaching Can Redeem Capitalism. And it really talked about a market economy that pays proper attention to relationships between people, horizontal and vertical, to the balances of power. Um, so I think we're beginning to see some hopeful moves of this growth in social enterprise, the growth in social business, people wanting their search for meaning to be reflected in the work that they do, wanting to create organisations that are more human, that yes, want to make a profit, yes, want to um, give people jobs, uh, but also don't want to treat each other just as units of output. So I do think that there is some hope in that. Where I am very sceptical about the market economy is where the logic of it begins to creep into places where it should never have been. Um, and obviously Michael Sandel's written brilliantly on this. There are some things that should be sacred values and should not be able to have a price put on them. That not everything is reducible to a profit or loss spreadsheet and we should be pretty firm um, on holding the line on those things. Okay, so I guess where, how do we control that logic where, where it seeps into those areas of life? It seems so kind of totalitarian in its uh, in yeah. its in its way, and then at the, uh, and at the same time, there are spaces where it doesn't seep into, and mm. we're able to realize the worth of objects in themselves mm. rather than an exchangeable value yeah. dictated by the market. Yeah. So my answer is I don't know. I obviously believe that religious ideas, particularly Christian ideas, are an enormous asset. That. One of the ways you stop human life being commoditized is you say no, that person is made in the image of God. They are a precious, valuable, dignified piece of creation, even if they have Down syndrome, even if they are severely disabled, even if they're not contributing anything to our economy, they have inherent dignity. And certainly that idea underpins a lot of liberal humanism, secular humanism as well. I just think that against the logic of the market, which can be all-consuming, I'm not sure if it's strong enough uh, without those roots. And I understand the argument that if you don't believe in the God in which human beings are made the image, then that, that idea is not much use to you in that situation either. But I, I don't really know how to square the circle on that. But finding alternative logics, finding alternative... Um, not alternative economies, because that's just giving in to the right. econometric a metric language, but alternative systems of value. Ethics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rather than just seeing price as an ethic in itself and the market as an ethic. But I want to ask you, what do you hold sacred? Hmm. 
I hold the quality of human relationships sacred, which sounds terribly pious and broad, but where I see things pushing us to treat each other as, to objectify each other, or making it easier for us to demonise other people, I get very nervous. Um, and the kind of thing I've lived my life for for a few years is that at my funeral I want them uh, I, the thing I want people to say is that my, that my relationships were all of my relationships were of high quality you know that they were invested in that they were valued um, beyond professional success beyond status beyond wealth that um, the, the, the legacy of not all of them will be loving relationships because that, that's not appropriate but of respectful relationships that honour the dignity of the other um, so that's what I think is okay.